Well, it's good to see all of you here in uh, summertime. And um, some of our folks are on vacation. We just got back. We had a wonderful Sunday, our first Sunday back. A lot of people were saved and uh, had great attendance. I, I was shocked. I mean, we're in the middle of the summer, and we're in no slump to speak of. So God is good all the time. Now, we're in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that's Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And those are the three chapters that um, comprise Jesus. It's called his greatest sermon. Of course, anything he said was a great sermon. But these three chapters, this Sermon on the Mount, is considered his masterpiece. Like I would say, Romans is Paul's masterpiece. Then Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, though, of course, he was God wrapped in flesh. And if he said one word, we need to pay attention to it, right? But we're in chapter 6, and last time we talked about giving and praying and fasting, which are three uh, things that all believers are to be involved in, giving and praying and fasting. That last one is not the easiest one for me. How many of you love it when God says to you, I want you to fast? Good, I have no liars in the house tonight. Okay, but Jesus said, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Jesus said that if we do these things in order to gain the admiration of men, we have our reward then and there when they say, oh, aren't you spiritual? Jesus said, if you did it to be seen of men, you got your reward right then. You won't get a reward from God. But conversely, Jesus taught that if we do these three things as unto the Lord, giving, praying, and fasting, and whatever else we do, the Father who sees you in secret will openly reward you. So when you go into that room and you go into your prayer closet and you shut the door and you've turned off the TV and the radio and you're, you are there to seek God, God is there. And he sees you in secret. And having done it as unto the Lord, he says, now, since you did it for the right motive, I'm going to openly bless you where it's clear to everybody, you're blessed. Everybody's going to be able to see it. You're blessed. Now, this time, we're going to drop back a few verses. Right before Jesus talked about fasting, and we're going to pick up on the Lord's Prayer. The greatest prayer ever prayed. In Luke's Gospel, in Luke 11, verse 1, you will find that one of the disciples asked Jesus, he said, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, we, we can tell, Lord, you're a great prayer. I mean, Jesus always prayed. He would go up into the mountain, and he would stay there all night long in prayer. Uh, before major decisions, you always find Jesus in prayer. And so they, they noticed this, and they said, Lord, you've really got it down with prayer, so teach us to pray. And both in Matthew and Luke, <clears throat> Jesus answered with the Lord's prayer. Now, I wanted us to read it together. Because we ought, to, we ought to know this prayer, but here it is up here. And let's read it out loud together. This is the Lord's Prayer. And let's, let's just go ahead and begin. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, <clears throat> your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And don't lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. 
Now, they said, teach us to pray. And that's what Jesus gave them as what has been called the model prayer. The prayer that... Now, how many of you can say tonight with me, I wish my prayer life was a little bit stronger? Can we say that? How many of you go into prayer and your, your mind goes blank and you drift and you're thinking about all these different things and suddenly you realize, I'm not praying, I'm daydreaming. All right? So Jesus really did give us a, a, a universally applicable prayer. Now, let's just pick this prayer apart. And I'm just going to spend the evening on this prayer. And uh, first of all, this model prayer, you'll notice, covers every need you will ever encounter. If you don't notice it now, you'll notice it by the time we're done. Its depth and its reach are profound, absolutely profound. Don't forget, this is God teaching us how to pray. If we pray through this prayer with understanding of what we're really praying, there's not an issue, there's not a problem, there's not a need that it will not apply to, that it will not answer, that it will not take care of. Now, let's, let's, let's just tackle verse by verse this prayer. First, Jesus said that the best way to begin prayer is by hallowing the name of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, the word hallow, if I'm going to hallow something, means to set it aside as holy and as sacred. So, so Jesus begins with the name of God. He said, when you begin to pray, I want you to, I want you to first and foremost set aside as sacred the name of God. Have, have you ever wondered why when people get angry in our culture, they don't say, oh, Buddha. You ever thought about that? Or how about, uh, oh, Muhammad? No. What do they do? They, they unhallow the name of God. They, they treat it like dirt. And so Jesus said, I want you to start out hallowing the name of God. You know, one of my real concerns about our culture and, and the church world at large is that we, we don't, we're not discerning anymore between what is sacred and common. We need to remember the things that are sacred. Can, can I just give you one? The house of God is sacred. Not because, you know, of the steel or the wood or the architectural shape of it, but because this is where we come to worship God. So the house of God is sacred. Our bodies are sacred because they're owned by him. Uh, so there is a difference between what is sacred and what is common. And the name of God uh, you couldn't find anything more sacred than that. Now, let's talk about God's name for a minute. God has many names in the Bible. And when God gives us a name for him, he is always telling us something about him, about himself. When he gives a name, like the ones we're going to look at, we're going to look at eight compound names of Jehovah. And with every one of these compound names of Jehovah, God is revealing something to us about himself we would never know if he didn't show it to us. It is by these names, Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh, Jehovah. All of those names mean something and reveal something to us about 
the Lord. Now, Jesus wants us, I believe, as we start this prayer, he wants us to understand who God is to us. Who is he to us? So I just want to take the compound names of Jehovah. We can leave Adonai, Elohim, and the others for another time. But let's just take those eight names just to give you an example. It is by these names that we're going to understand when we pray who God is, who the God is we're praying to and what he will do on our behalf. So let's start with the first one, Jehovah Jireh. Can everybody say with me, Jehovah Jireh? Now, we know that name. Most of you could tell me what that name means, but it means that, that God is the provider. And that name was first revealed in Genesis twenty two fourteen when Abraham had had uh, Isaac on the altar and he had told Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb. And all of a sudden, when God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac, they heard something and looked and over there in the thicket was a ram caught in that thicket and God had provided an offering. And that's where God was first named, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and provides. Now, I know that he provides for me. I know he provides for you. He provides for us. I still am amazed. I, I think of upstairs. We started upstairs, and it looked like such a huge project, and it was a huge project. It is. And yet here we are all of a sudden, all we owe is 45000 to finish it without going into any debt. And I, and I look, and every week we just kind of step forward. And, and here we are, and it's almost paid for. And we called out on Jehovah Jireh. So we're very used to going to him for our needs. But the real meaning out of which this name came, the real thing that God wanted us to see with Jehovah Jireh is that he would provide for us a sacrifice who would die in our place. Jehovah Jireh. And who did he provide? He provided the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah Jireh. So when I go into prayer, I know that he's my provider. I need to know that. Doesn't that build your faith? All right, then the second name, Jehovah Rophi, means the Lord, my healer, or Jehovah who heals. Now, right now, we've got a healing room going on on the way south end of the church, and people are going to be healed. You know why we have a healing room? Because we believe there is Jehovah Rophi, the Lord who heals, or Jehovah, my healer. God revealed this name in the wilderness when he made the bitter waters sweet for the children of Israel. So we could say that our God turns bitter into sweet. He turns bitter into sweet if you trust him. Jehovah Rophi. So when I go to the Lord in prayer, doesn't it help to know he's my healer? Hallowed be thy name. Then the third name is Jehovah Nissi. And that means the Lord is my banner. And God revealed this name following the battle in the wilderness with the Amalekites. It was here that Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms. You remember that. Held up his arms. And as long as they held his arms up in the air, the Israelites won the battle. If his arms were lowered, they began to lose the battle. So because his arms got weak, Aaron and Hur held his arms up until Israel had totally defeated the Amalekites. And there, God revealed his name as Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner in a battle. Now, the fourth name is Jehovah Rohi, and I love this one. The Lord is my shepherd. 
David proudly said it in Psalms 23.1. Can we just quote together the first verse of that great psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, I want to say it like this, because this is the way David was saying it. He, I picture him with a little bit. He's proud here of God. I think he was saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Amen. I think that's the way he was saying it. Sort of like, that's my wife. Okay? Or, you know, Turning Point is my church. I don't want people to just say, oh, I attend Turning Point. That's where I go. No, I want you to say, that's my church. Okay? But can we just say it with some attitude now? The Lord is my shepherd. Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, that felt good. That felt right. He's my shepherd. That means he leads and he feeds. He leads me and he feeds me. He takes care of me. The Lord is my shepherd. So, so isn't it good to know that name when you go into the place of prayer? He's going to lead me. He's going to feed me. He's going to guide me. He's going to protect me from the wolves and the lions and the bears. He's my shepherd. The fifth name God revealed regarding himself uh, is Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord is my righteousness is what that means. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Every believer in Jesus Christ in this room has the righteousness of Jesus on your life, and that's why you're going into heaven. You're going to go into heaven because he's your righteousness. You're not standing on your own righteousness. You can't because we break the commandments of God every single day in one way or another. But we have one who never sinned, and his righteousness was imputed to me, and my sin was imputed to him. So he's my righteousness, and that's Jehovah Sidkin. Isn't that good to know? Because if you don't know that, prayer is really hard because you're going to go into prayer condemned, feeling guilty. You know, I, I, I mess up all the time. But if I go into the presence of the Lord in his name, covered in his righteousness, I have boldness in the presence of God. Okay? Two more names. The seventh name is Jehovah Shalom. And what is that one? The Lord is our peace. We know that. And this name was revealed following the angelic visitation to Gideon. Here's Gideon, and all of a sudden an angel appears to him. He freaks out. He says, oh, my gosh, I've seen God face to face. Now I'm going to die. But Judges 6.24 says that then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Why did he call him Jehovah my peace? Because God had said to him, you will not die. I have visited you so you could set my people free. So he's my peace. Can we say that together? He's my peace. He's my peace. And the Bible says his peace is so profound, it's the peace that passes all comprehension. In other words, you experience God's peace when you shouldn't be experiencing God's peace circumstantially, and yet you still are. So who can make sense out of this? It's God's peace. Okay? And then the last name is a great one, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. Where is there? Wherever you are. This name of God was given at the closing. These are the last words in Ezekiel's prophecy. 
It was given at the very end of Ezekiel's prophetic book to describe the Lord's presence on the land he had given to his people. So Ezekiel 48, 35 says, it was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah. So his revealed names, let's say these together. Because remember now, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then I'm going to remember what his names mean. Because every one of these eight names reveal to us something that we can have faith in in the place of prayer. So say them with me. He's my provider, healer, banner, shepherd, righteousness, sanctifier, peace, and presence. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen. So now if I do that at the beginning of prayer, I'm already in the spirit. If I go into the presence of God, praising like this, hallowing his name, I guarantee you I'm sensing his presence now. Now, the next thing Jesus taught us to pray Let's, let's do it together. Can we? Your kingdom come. Ready? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the kingdom of God is the place or the condition where God's will is done. When you see God's will being done, the kingdom of God is there. It's where his rule and reign are welcomed and honored. When we pray that his kingdom come, we're actually praying that his will would be done over a person or in a situation or a nation and so on. I'll tell you, sometimes I get radical with that verse. You want to know what I do? I'll stand in the middle of my living room or wherever I happen to be and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll pray, Lord, come kingdom of God over this situation. Be done, will of God, in this circumstance. When I go into the place of prayer, I want to pray, Lord, today, let your kingdom come first into my life. Because, folks, we can't give what we don't have. But what we do have, we can minister. And and see, if we're in the middle of God's will, we really have something to offer to others. But if we're out there in rebellion or drifting or compromising, We really need to get ourselves fixed first. So I I find it interesting that Jesus taught us to pray first in, in this Lord's Prayer. After we have praised him and focused on his name, now he's got us. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done in my life today. Because the whole Lord's Prayer contextually is easily interpreted as a daily prayer. Give us this day, our daily bread. So every day we're saying, Lord, today I'm going out there into a world filled with the flesh, filled with the devil, filled with temptation, filled with warfare. So Lord, establish your kingdom in my heart today, me. Start with me. It is an excellent way to start each and every day. Pray that God's will is done in our lives. I pray without fail every day, Lord, order my steps today. Order my steps today. Give me divine encounters. Order my steps today. And may no iniquity have victory over me. And I pray his kingdom come and his will be done. 
as I shared Sunday, where's the safest place to be, even even if it's in a, a fierce battle? The safest place is the will of God. Come kingdom of God today in my own life and may your will be done. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not eating, it's not drinking. But how do you know the kingdom of God is established in your life? It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is not just a place, but it's a condition. It is the condition where his will is done. And we experience, when we're in the middle of the will of God, can you say with me, I have his righteousness, and I have his peace, and I have his joy when I'm in the middle of the will of God. What a great thing to pray over ourselves daily. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I think it was George Mueller, the great... um, Man of God, man of prayer, man of faith. In the 1800s, he was a contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon in London. And he would say, I get up and I make it my first business every day to get happy in the Lord. Well, that's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, and by the way, I would pray that first over myself then over my family, then over my church, and then over my nation. Boy, do we need the kingdom of God to come to America. So you pray over your children. You pray over your spouse. You pray over your family. You pray over others. Lord, come kingdom of God, be done will of God. I pray over Jeremy and Julia regularly. Lord, may the kingdom of God be established in their lives today. Now, the very next verse in the Lord's Prayer is one for provision. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice that's a daily thing. Give us today our daily bread. Where do you think Jesus wanted our dependence to be? The government and welfare? No. He said, I want you to depend on me. I'm Jehovah Jireh, your provider. So give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice how this places our faith and trust for our personal provision squarely on the Lord every day. Listen to what David said. He said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Why would that be? Because he's our shepherd and he is our provider. And so here we find all of those concepts in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It teaches daily dependence on God. And I always think of the children of Israel. When they got into the wilderness, God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up every day while the sun is rising, and I want you to go out and gather the manna off the ground. You better do it before the sun gets too high because then it's going to rot. And then he said, you can't use yesterday's manna today. You must gather today's manna today and gather it while the gathering is good. And what was God trying to teach them? He was trying to teach them that their source was not Pharaoh. Their source was not Egypt. They were used to a slave mentality. They were used to Pharaoh being their provider. But God said, I've taken you out of Egypt now. You don't look to Pharaoh, it's a picture of the world. You don't look to Pharaoh anymore for your provision. I'm your provider. 
So I want you to every day when you get up, confident that while you slept, I provided for you on the ground. And you're going to go gather it. And so every day for 40 years, they ate that manna. And every day, God was trying to teach them, I want you to lean on me, depend on me, trust me to provide for you. 40 years, it took them to learn that. And then the first generation still didn't learn it. It took the second generation. But I love the words, when they crossed over the Jordan, it says the manna ceased. Why did it cease? Now they're in a new dispensation. Now they are to go and conquer in the name of God. See, folks, God wants us to learn daily dependence. We should be certain when praying for provision that we're in God's will regarding prayer, church life, giving, and so on. God honors obedience, and his provision comes to those who are aligned with his will. And you know what I think God wants us to do when we pray for provision? I think he wants us to be specific. Like, if you need $120 to pay a bill, I think instead of just saying, Lord, provide for me, you ought to say, Lord, I need $120 to pay for this bill. Right? Because that's what you need. I mean, we're saying right now, Lord, we need $45,000 to finish upstairs. I'm not saying, Lord, we need more money. I'm saying, Lord, we need $45,000 to pay for upstairs. And you know what's going to happen? God's going to do it. He's going to do it. Now, we should be specific in our requests. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I don't want you to worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request. Now, when he used that word request, he's talking about specificity in prayer, a request. You need a car? Ask God to provide a car. You need a job? I was talking to a man. Oh, probably an hour and a half ago tonight, who's looking everywhere for a job. And I said to him, I said, Danny, he's not in this church. I said, Danny, God's going to provide for you. Kathy and I are going to pray for you. I know it looks bleak, but God is going to provide for you. And we're going to pray that he opens up a door and gives you the job you need to pay your bills. We're going to be specific because God's a specific God. And you know what? Sometimes not only specificity, but tenacity in prayer is required. I heard somebody teach once. They said, if you pray for something more than once, you're not praying in faith. And I thought, that's the biggest bunch of baloney I've ever heard in all my life. Because that flies in the face of all New Testament teaching. Jesus said, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And you will receive and it'll be opened and God will do it. But sometimes you've got to pray and then pray some more and then pray some more and then pray some more and stay with it until the answer comes. But every time you go to him and pray, the anxiety you were having is replaced with peace. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your specific request be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard over your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. You know what gives people heart attacks? Anxiety. Worry. Fear. Hand-wringing. Sleepless nights. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
He said, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about your life. We're going to come to that next week. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Can everybody say with me, don't worry about your life. Now, how many of you in here tonight have been worried about your life? He said, don't worry about your life. And what is he talking about? Provision. Don't worry what you're going to eat or drink or wear. He said, I want you to look. I picture them walking down the road, a little dirt road somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere around Jerusalem, and here's the 12. And Jesus always pointed to nature. Look at the birds up there. They don't worry about anything, and God feeds them. He said, look at those flowers out there, guys. They don't toil. They don't spin. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of those. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't worry about your life. Well, if I don't worry about it, nobody else is going to worry about it. Oh, yeah, they will. God will take care of you. God's already got your life in his hands. So don't worry about your life. Be tenacious. Stay with it. Don't give up in prayer. So notice we begin prayer by hallowing God's name, remembering who he is to us. Then we pray that his rule and reign be over our lives and as well as our families, our church, and our nation. Then we pray for his provision. And then next, Jesus taught us about forgiveness. He said, pray, forgive us our debts, Lord, as we forgive our debtors. Now, I love the first part of that. I wish he hadn't added the second part. Because this is one of the toughest things Jesus ever taught. Jesus said, yeah, ask God to forgive you, but if you haven't forgiven someone else, forget asking God to forgive you because he won't forgive you if you won't forgive others. Oh, Lord, why did you have to say that? This Sermon on the Mount was so beautiful till you went and said that. Because I don't like always having to forgive. I like watching Chuck Norris movies and Schwarzenegger, Terminator revenge movies. We all do, or they wouldn't have been so popular. We love it when that hero of, of, of the movie finds the perpetrator that hurt him and takes vengeance on him. And you know why we love it? Because we put ourselves in their place and wish we could do what they've done. Come on, don't look at me so holy. Pull that halo down off your head. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus taught daily repentance because this is a daily prayer. We're to say, Lord, forgive me my sins. Forgive me my debts. Isn't it interesting that he called our sins a debt to God? They're debts to God. We owe God. And that's why we used to sing that song, he paid a debt he did not owe. Talking about Jesus. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. But now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, because Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. 
We live in a filthy world. It's a world of moral filth, of relational conflicts, a thousand and one temptations. That's the world we live in. And our culture, folks, officially, is seriously sick. If I was a doctor and our culture, the American culture, was a patient, I would say they had a raging fever of 105 and were in ICU. Really, Jeff, you feel that way? Oh, you better know I do. I think about it every day. I can't believe what has happened to our culture, and we're in it. Now, how are you in it? How do you survive in such a culture that is so immoral, so twisted, so deceived, so seemingly determined to flaunt our sin in the face of a holy God? How do you live in that? You walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. You get in the Word of God every single day, and you pray things like the Lord's Prayer, and and, and you be sure that you live the way Jesus taught. He's not only my Savior, He's my teacher. And if He's not my teacher, I'm really going to get in trouble. People say, oh yeah, I came to the cross, and I went down to the altar, and 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 I went to the cross, and I asked God to forgive me. But then my question is this, all right, having forgiven you, have you now allowed him to be your teacher? Is he your teacher? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me put it another way. Can the Bible tell you what to do? Or is it optional? Well, I like that verse, but I don't like this one. So I'll do this one, but not this one. And I really don't have to do the ones that I don't like. Can the Bible, God's Word, tell us what to do? A lot of believers, dear church, they get saved, they get their fire insurance, but they never transition over into Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher in the history of the world. He's my philosopher. He's my instructor. He's my infallible, inerrant guide. He doesn't miss. He doesn't get old. His advice doesn't become antiquated. He is always relevant. So when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, can that tell us what to do? Can it tell us what to do? Yeah. It it better. Jesus said, if you listen to these sayings of mine, as your teacher and do them, I'm going to liken you to a person that built his house on a rock. The winds blow, the winds of adversity, the rain of adversity, the floods of adversity bash up against your house, but it does not fall because it was founded on the rock. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. What was the rock? Jesus, but let's go further. Not just Jesus, but where did he say that if you build your house on the rock? Where is it located in the Bible? It's at the very end of what? The Sermon on the Mount. So he's not just saying, me, the rock, build your house on me, but also on what I said, what I taught. A lot of Christians just take it or or leave it. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus says. What I'm amazed at is how little many Christians know about anything Jesus said. Jesus taught daily repentance. He said, every day we all say, Lord, forgive me my debts. Forgive me for my 
Any thought, any word, any action, any attitude that has grieved you, forgive me. He really taught us to keep very short accounts with God. Repent quick. You ever watch somebody pour cement on a day like today? You know how long it stays wet? In, the 19, in 1980, when we had this endless heat wave, do you know what I was doing? I was a paper hanger, a wallpaper hanger. And I wasn't even a good one, but I was a paper hanger. And I worked for a really good one. And I know I vexed him a lot because I didn't really have a gift for it. But nevertheless, he carried me around and we, and we hung paper. And, and this summer of 1980, it was triple digits for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. It was just like, oh, my gosh. Uh, you talk about global warming, okay, which is not real, by the way. But anyway, here's how hot it was. We, we would lay out these, these, these long strips of, of wallpaper that were going to go on an, you know, an eight-foot or a ten-foot wall. We would, we would roll out these strips of wallpaper, and you, and you rolled the glue onto them, and it was so hot because we were in little bitty Fox and Jacob homes that had no A.C. in them. So we were in there when it was like 110 outside, and, and we had 100-watt light bulbs hanging down uh, so we could see and when you went into one of these little bitty bathrooms that had no window you could open, and it was 110 outside, you can know what it was like in there for us. And when you, when you rolled the glue onto this paper, you had to run to the wall and slap it up there because between rolling on the glue and getting to the wall, it dried. Well, where are you going with this, Jeff? Here's where I'm going. The longer you wait to repent, the harder your heart gets. That glue dries fast, okay? Jesus said daily, ask God to forgive you. And if there's anybody that you're offended with, forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus was well aware of what could happen should we develop a root of bitterness. So he taught the best safeguard against it was to practice forgiveness as a way of life. I be, believe in being preemptive. I think every person in here ought to leave tonight having your mind made up when I get offended, not if, but when, I'm going to be a forgiver. I am not going to hold a grudge. I'm not going to remain bitter. I'm not going to be unforgiving because there's not a person on this planet who's worth my call, my walk with God, my destiny. Amen. So I forgive. Then Jesus closed out his model prayer with instructions to pray for deliverance from evil. Can we pray this together right now? And lead us not into temptation. Pray it with me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, of course, the Greek language, it says the evil one. Not just evil as a thing or a presence, but the evil one from whom evil comes. Deliver us from the evil one, speaking of Satan. Now, I used to read that and say, wait a minute. I don't get it because that sounds like Jesus is telling us that God will lead us into temptation. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Because we know what James said in James 1 verse 13. He said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So doesn't that seem to fly in the face of what Jesus told us to pray? Don't lead me, Lord, into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Well, the second part I get, but what about that first part? Don't lead me into temptation. He, here's where the language matters and where words matter in the original language. The word for temptation can also be translated into testing or trial. And he was not implying that God would ever encourage us to sin. What he's teaching us is to pray that the temptation or the trial does not triumph over us. That it doesn't win the day. That we remain victorious in the presence of the temptation or in the presence of the trial. Don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from this evil that is set before me. Now, let me read you something John Piper wrote. Pastor John Piper, great theologian, great Bible teacher, he he wrote this. Today, I will stand before innumerable temptations. That's what life is. Endless choices between belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. But almighty God forbid that I would yield. Hold me back from stepping inside the temptation. That's the idea. I can't, I I don't know how anybody makes it in our culture. I don't know how any Christian makes it without getting up every day and burying your nose in that word first. You know my little saying, no Bible, no breakfast. And and I really do that. There's times I wake up really hungry. I say, nope, I'm going to the word of God first. I'm not trying to sound super spiritual. I'm not patting myself on the back. I've learned from experience that I don't care how gifted you are, how talented you are, how smart you are, how good-looking you are, how capable you are. You will be dog meat for the devil if you don't get with God. How's that for putting it bluntly? You will, because watch this, we're only as strong as our last time with God. When was that? I'm only as strong as my last time with God. Otherwise, I can easily be tempted. I can easily start thinking wrong. I can easily be lured away if I don't keep myself in the Word of God. Listen, if Jesus had to do it, where does that leave us? In our prayer, we should ask God to place His gracious hedge of protection around us. You know, in Psalms 91, we find God talking towards the end, and this is what he says. Because he, that is, the believer is the he, that's the pronoun, because he, the believer, has set his love upon me, God, therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. But how does it begin? Because the believer 
set his love upon God. So, that to me clearly reveals what we have often called a hedge of protection. And I'm going to close with this. Satan said to God concerning Job, he said, does Job fear God for nothing? And then look what Satan said to God about Job. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? Do you know that's a spiritual reality? And do you know that right there Satan told the truth in a backward kind of way? God had to put a hedge around him and his children and his belongings and everything. So here you have this hedge of protection. Now, conversely, when a person or a nation abandons God, the hedge of protection is eventually removed. God is speaking to Isaiah the prophet concerning wayward Israel. And listen to what he says. Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard, and the vineyard is Israel. I will take away its... Say it with me, everybody. I will take away its hedge. And what will happen once the hedge is gone? It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. So there God is telling us clearly in the Bible that when a nation or a person is in his favor, is walking in his will, there is a hedge. And when a person or a nation walks away, there comes a time when God lifts that hedge. And boy, it's a bad day when he lifts that hedge. Because when that hedge is lifted, destruction, breaking down of the wall of protection and security, and then trampling by an enemy. So we need to pray, oh God, today. I'm closing out your model prayer by asking you, whatever temptation or ever trial I encounter, oh God, put your hedge around me. That I will not succumb, I will not give in, or I won't... uh, uh, um, Be overwhelmed and faint in the day of adversity. But you will keep me. I trust you for that hedge. I believe there's a hedge around my life as long as I walk with God. Does that mean I don't ever experience trouble or problems? No, of course not. But folks, do you know that if God totally lifted his total hedge of protection off of us right now, we would all collapse We're every day kept by the restraints of God over our life. So let's say it together. Can we stand together?